Welcome to episode 96 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Anthony White, first team assistant goalkeeping coach at AFC Bournemouth. Anthony White comes from the northwest of England, from a rural county mainly known for producing Cheshire cheese. I'm from a small town in England, uh, in Cheshire, called Sandbach, very rural town. My closest neighbours were small farm animals. I grew up there, went to a small primary school, Catholic primary school, and then moved on to Sandbach Grammar School, which was an independent school for boys. Great facility in terms of sporting aspects as well as education and helped me sort of progress not only my sporting background from football and cricket, but also into an educational setting, uh, which now lies where I am from a coaching and, and sports science perspective. For college, Anthony moved across the pond to the Sunshine State. He attended Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, where he graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology and was a member of their men's soccer program. He left Rollins with a dream, and that dream was to be a goalkeeping coach in professional football. A dream that he fulfilled in December of 2013 when he became the youngest goalkeeping coach in English professional football, working at Oldham Athletic at the tender age of 22. Following nearly three years at Oldham Athletic, he was hired at AFC Bournemouth as both the first team assistant goalkeeping coach and goalkeeper specific sports scientist. For those that don't know Bournemouth, I asked Anthony to tell me something that only a true insider would know about the town. Bournemouth's a lovely a lovely place, to be honest. It's somewhere that I'd never been to up until this past 12 months. It's right on the coast, currently about four and a half hours away from, from up north where I'm originally from. Small, very small, becoming modern. And a lot of people usually associate the area with um, older people, people that come to retire. In actual fact, it's not. It's an area where students are now starting to come, investors are starting to come, and I think that's partly down to the fact of the success within within the area from the football environment. Bournemouth as a club has progressed, and I think the town uh, is slowly starting to do that as well. Indeed, AFC Bournemouth has progressed tremendously. Things looked fairly bleak at the beginning of the 2008-2009 season, with the team's future in the Football League in doubt following a 17-point penalty for failing to follow the Football League's insolvency rules. It was during the middle of that season, with the club still 10 points adrift, and at the bottom of the table, that former player Eddie Howe took over as manager, becoming the youngest manager in the Football League at the age of 31. And that season, they engineered a great escape. Since then, they have been able to climb up the ladder, going from League 2 to League 1, from League 1 to the Championship winning the championship in the 2014-2015 season and winning promotion to the Premier League for the first time ever in club in the club's history, which is where they have found themselves for the past couple of seasons, ending up last season in a very respectable ninth place. Since joining the Premier League, AFC Bournemouth has invested heavily in its sports science department, which leads us to today's conversation with Anthony White, who is doing some unique and groundbreaking research trying to understand and quantify the physiological demands placed on goalkeepers. Enjoy the conversation. (music) 
Welcome back to the Historic Performance Podcast. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Anthony White for joining me on today's podcast to discuss his unique research trying to quantify and understand the physiological demands on a goalkeeper, an area that has not been researched extensively. Anthony, to start us off, could you tell us about the overall structure at AFC Bournemouth, both in terms of the sports science department and the goalkeeping department, and how the two relate with one another? Yeah, sure. So um, in terms of the sports science department, the sports science and medical medical department work very closely together. You have um, Dan Hodges, who's head of sports science, and underneath him, you have a, a very, very good S&C coach called Ben Donachie, who works alongside Sean, who's also the data scientist. And you also have Phil, who's an under-21 sports scientist, among a lot of other interns that we have structured in place. And those four individuals there excel at their pr- profession, have built a department that is now successful in the top half of the Premier League. Athletes that are performing at their very best that have come from lower leagues and are now performing against the likes of Premier League players that have always been there. Not only is that down to obviously their hard work, but also the manager's hard work. And that ties in with the medical department that is growing a rapid rate daily, uh, weekly and yearly. You know, the staff members that they're recruiting are highly qualified, highly motivated. And the knowledge that they have is exceptional within the Premier League. We have a doctor who's worked for South African rugby before. We have a physio who's come through the ranks um, at at the football club, worked in in the lower leagues, you know, of League Two, League One, and now becomes as head of physio, the head physio within the department. And we've got other younger members of staff within the physio department that are have their own specialities within the within that department and are placing that emphasis into the club. In order, in order to obviously aid the department, but primarily to aid the athletes and their performance. And then obviously, if you look at our goalkeeping department, again, it's it's very unique. Um, I sort of cross between the sports science and the coaching department with the majority of where I have my stronghold is in obviously in the goalkeeping department because that's where I'm based. But obviously, my knowledge comes from both the sports science and coaching aspect. With the goalkeeping department, again, it's very unique because we have a, a first team head of uh, goalkeeping Neil Moss who's played a vast amount of games in the professional setting including many seasons in the Premier League I assist him from both a sports science perspective and also a coaching perspective within that first team setup we also have a, a goalkeeping analyst who looks at all of the goalkeeping analysis training reports match reports match coding training coding you name it and he offers that from a first team perspective 21's perspective and also links into the academy as well. And then when you look, you know, within the goalkeeping setup, further down, we have an under-21s goalkeeping coach who is Gareth Stewart, who has been a professional, again, for many years, many hundreds of league games played, and a former player of AFC Bournemouth, just like Neil Moss. And then we have an, another goalkeeping coach who oversees the under-18s into the academy, who has played at a high level as well. Um, and sort of aids in our development from the under-9s all the way through to the under-18s. Anthony, at AFC Bournemouth, every goalkeeper is wearing the G5 unit. What spurred you to make sure that each goalkeeper was wearing GPS? 
Uh, what questions did you initially want to answer as a coaching and sports science staff? Yeah, well, um, initially the the units were brought in, um, only three of them, prior to my arrival at the club uh, by Dan Hodges, head of sports science. And I think initially what he wanted to get is an understanding of goalkeeping load. And then obviously I was brought in in the summer. It became apparent that, you know, we were monitoring three or four goalkeepers and yet we were maybe neglecting another four, five, six, seven, or even eight goalkeepers within the in the setup that we could actually gain useful information from not only as a club, but from an individual perspective. And that meant that head of sports science and head of goalkeeping, Neil Moss, sort of came together and sort of said, well, there's an, a real need here for more units, more data collection, a greater understanding of the actual athletes that we have here. And then that could have an ongoing effects in terms of what we actually replicate on field the uses off the field and how we use the data from a sports science and analysis perspective what have you learned from the data collected about the demands of being a goalkeeper at afc bournemouth so the data that we obviously have collected has been quite substantial you know we have a large amount of data from training now you could look at it 16 17 1800 pieces of individual data We've got over 100 records of game data now from, from the Premier League all the way down to the Evo Stick South. And what that's doing now is allowing us to understand the, the needs of the goalkeeper specifically from a week-to-week basis, but it's also allowing us to understand where their most intense periods are within a week, where, what certain sessions have an effect on the goalkeeper's week or have an effect on you know the goalkeeper in terms of the next day or a game day and it also allows us to look at game data values and almost understand whether that is a wasted day in terms of physical outputs in comparison to to training days and whether there's another stimulus that we can include there in order to give the goalkeeper as much attention and as much focus as possible uh, for that individual athlete. From a physical perspective, typically the game day is seen as as, as the day where uh, players are subjected to the most amount of load. And this is talking about field-based players. Is it the same with goalkeepers? No. So when we look back at the data, we, you know, we're looking at it from a physical perspective whereby you know, goalkeepers can undertake 20% of their actual outputs in terms of number of dives uh, just within a, within a game setting. Distance is greater than what we would normally find within a training setting in comparison to games. And that's simply because of the forward, backwards movements that occur. And again, that will differ from game to game, dependent on the team that we play, the possession that we have, the type of style of football that the opposition will play and the league. Uh, but what we find is, is that, that that game day is substantially less and therefore for our understanding in terms of our weekly cycle or our, our weekly load, it's really important that we attribute the workload that they're getting in training to the, the needs of the technical demands. Because obviously when they go into a, a game setting, the technical details are one or two aspects and can occur in a, a very minimal time period you know you're talking a second or two seconds and if they haven't prepared for them throughout the week you're potentially at a disadvantage when you go into a game setting so it's really important that obviously the load that's accrued during the week is a of quality and not quantity and 
has an influence on a, a game setting, but also from a, a physical output, doesn't uh, fatigue the athlete for those one or two instances within a game setting. If game day isn't the time period that a goalkeeper experiences its highest training load, where does that occur during the week? So taking solely um, one perspective that we have found is a consistent, intense period within a week, that would be pre-game shooting. Now, pre-game shooting occurs across the world, no matter what club you're at, no matter who you play for, whether it be lower leagues, whether it be at the highest leagues. And what tends to happen is that there is a five to 15 minute period at the at the end of a warm up prior to a game. And you usually find at the lower leagues, there's one goalkeeper, potentially the number two, that stands in the goal. And there's an enormous amount of shots placed on that one individual goalkeeper. And we're just finding from average data that, you know, a goalkeeper could uh, accrue 31 dives or 32 dives on average within that 11 minute period which is our pre-game shooting time, a high amount of uh, change of direction and a high amount of very different types of actions. So the G5 doesn't allow us to pick up blocks, spreads, uh, the tiny little saves that they might make, but we can see that in the change of direction data. So when we look back and obviously look at the most intense period within a week, you can notice that Within that 11-minute period of time, you know, if the goalkeepers are crewing 31 or 32 dives within that period, and you compare that to small-sided games, it may only be two or three, or you compare it to a game, which, you know, at the top of my head, is like a dive every 11 minutes. You can see that the intense period occurs within that pre-game shooting element. And obviously, if we understand that certain aspects like scoops, blocks, spreads are being picked up by the G5, but we know from a visual perspective that those are occurring within a, a pre-game shooting. And we can see that that number, if we're looking solely at a number of actions that the goalkeeper's undertaking, which would be 31 or 32 when it's looked at from a dive perspective, is actually considerably more. Because if you look at it and say that within a pre-game shooting setting, there's maybe 70 shots being placed on a goalkeeper, then there's going to be more than 31 or 32 dives. And those other actions could be missed shots, the goalkeeper's moving into line or, or moving into an area where they can potentially make the save if it wasn't target, or they're making a save other than from a, a diving perspective. And that might be a block, a spread, um, or a scoop, which is, again, placing load on the goalkeeper. But we're currently able to quantify it in terms of a visual perspective. But can we quantify it in terms of what is being read back on the G5? Not at the moment. So then it becomes a bit of common sense from the, you know, the goalkeeping coaches and the, and the sports science staff that we understand that the load is considerably higher and the, the actions that are being undertaken by the goalkeeper, again, are considerably higher in comparison to actions on field. Perhaps we should have actually began with this question, um, but at AFC Bournemouth, what are the key data points that you are trying to collect to understand uh, the training load of a goalkeeper? So, I mean, we look at, um, obviously, dives as a, as a major aspect. We'll also look at jumps and we'll look at change of direction. Cumulative together, uh, we also look at something uh, as their most intense actions, which you would look at change of direction. You would look at um, dive return and then you would look at uh, high jumps. So we've grouped together those three actions, change of direction, high jumps and dive return as an explosive action area 
And by doing that, that allows us to see sort of intense periods or the intensity within that session. So we may get back a, a graph that gives us an explosive effort count or explosive actions count of maybe 60, 70 or 80. And within that, it also has a breakdown of the number of dive returns at a high intensity, so less than a second, the number of jumps that are within the high bracket and the number of changes of direction again on the high level. And by bringing those three together and grouping them, it allows us to give sort of an intense factor of the session. It allows us to, to understand the goalkeeper's most intense actions. And then again, we can compare that to previous sessions because what we can do is we can compare previous sessions to those high dive returns. We can compare previous sessions to the change of direction. We can compare previous sessions again to the high jumps. The issue we, we do have, which maybe outfield settings don't, is the variability. Uh, and what I mean by that is not every cross is going to be the same. So not every high jump is going to be the same. Not every dive is going to be the same. So therefore, not every return to the feet is going to be the same. Because as you take a dive maybe to a medium perspective for a save, that is going to differ from a low save. However, obviously, when we read the unit, the dive is still categorized as a dive. It won't differentiate between whether you've taken that as a, a medium save or whether you've taken that as a low save. So it then becomes us again understanding the data from a, a sports science perspective, but also from a coaching perspective, understanding whether that session has varied from the previous session. There's a service, you know, the service varied, and does it replicate um, a true setting? Before we were discussing um, the way that you go about collecting the information at AFC Bournemouth, but now I want to talk about how you go about planning out a week for each individual goalkeeper based on their respective needs. Because as you mentioned, what you're doing there is may not necessarily be all that different than other organizations, but what you're doing is utilizing the data collected uh, via sports science to make more informed decisions. So could you talk to us about how, as an integrated group, you go about figuring out what the goalkeeper needs for that week and then the way that you plan a goalkeeper session for the week? Sure. So the like I said before, that I don't think what we're doing at Bournemouth is necessarily a, a whole lot different to a, a lot of other clubs. And um, what I mean by that is, you know, that the goalkeeping coach work uh, that you see up and down the country and across the world is fantastic. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel from that perspective, but what we are trying to do is we're trying to use every uh, ounce of detail that we get back, whether it be from an analysis perspective or whether it be from a, a sports science perspective, from you know GPS readings or or readings from the gym, uh, to sort of inform us as to how to get the best out of our goalkeepers and how to uh, you know increase their performance levels from every single aspect. We have a really structured plan when it comes to all of our nine professional goalkeepers. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have an integrative department with obviously four coaches, a sports scientist and an analysis. And all of those people's opinions matter when it comes to the needs of the goalkeeper for that week. Uh, so I'll give you an example. We have, we have a board at the club which categorizes the goalkeepers into where they are for the week. So what days are they playing uh, games? Um, what days are they training? 
when they are training, what are they doing in those training sessions? If they're going to games, are they going as a number two and therefore maybe exposed to a little bit more load if they were to do the goalkeeping uh, pre-game shooting session? Are they going as a number three and therefore, you know, what are they getting from that game perspective? Obviously, they're getting potentially a lot of tactical knowledge from there, but their physical outputs would be minimal. So once we map that out, and we get a clear understanding of where the goalkeeper is from a, a game perspective, from a physical perspective in terms of their needs, and from a tactical and um, technical basis, we can then plan and really have a structured setup for the week for each individual goalkeeper. If you take um, a couple of the goalkeepers for an example, say the goalkeeper's played on a Saturday, um, we know that Yes, they may need some physical needs on that Monday because their physical needs from a game day is somewhat like a training session. But their technical and tactical needs become somewhat higher because there may have been a goal that may have been conceded uh, or a save that may have won us the game or kicking may not have been the best for that game or small little decisions in there tactically that... Nobody else potentially noticed, but from a goalkeeper's standpoint, they wanted to refine. It will be up to us to understand from a coaching perspective, analysis perspective, and a sports science perspective, where they fit on that continuum. So when they come in on that Monday, are we focusing for that particular goalkeeper on a technical and tactical element, or are we looking at them from a physical perspective? Now, the physical perspective may come in when you've got a goalkeeper who's the number three, and this may happen at various clubs across the country. The number three travels, and like I said before, you know, our number three is likely to undertake the pre-game shooting, so the number two can focus on the game. But other clubs, you know, that number three may not be exposed to anything apart from service on a game day. So they've potentially hardly trained on the Friday. They won't have trained on the Saturday. They'll then have a day off on the Sunday. And now you're looking at Monday as a training physical day. Uh, you know, they may have gained some tactical knowledge from the game simply from watching the game. And by all means, they can be a part of the technical and tactical element from, you know, the number one goalkeeper and understand what the needs were from their perspective. However, their needs for that day are from more of a physical output because they potentially have three days off of doing very little versus obviously a technical and tactical point of view which we can um, facilitate for them throughout the rest of the week. And like I say, once we get that understanding of where the goalkeeper is uh, within the spectrum of the week, it then just allows us to, to sort of categorise all the different goalkeepers into different blocks. So the goalkeepers that may be on loan or have played or have played for different teams, you know, they're now a technical and tactical perspective and they're a block of technical and tactical goalkeepers for that, that element. You know, and then we look at the, the needs of the other goalkeepers that may have not played or trained at all. And now their needs are a physical perspective and they become one category as well. And then that allows us you know, to, um, to sort of direct the goalkeepers in a way and manipulate their, their sessions uh, so that everybody within the goalkeeping department is facilitated with their needs from a technical, tactical, obviously psychological and physical basis. I think we are very lucky from our perspective because we have nine professional goalkeepers. We can manipulate where they go. We can manipulate where they go from you know, the under-21s through to the first team. We can manipulate where they are in terms of whether they go into a shooting session, whether they go into a phase of play. You know, 
we can move them so that um, obviously the manager's needs, who he wants in the sessions, but also we can move them from the goalkeeper's needs in terms of their physical outputs and what they need to gain from each individual session. Uh, and although we're obviously doing it on a larger scale with nine goalkeepers, at any one time within a particular team, you know, we may only have four or five goalkeepers. And I think that can be the case for many um, many first teams across the country and uh, certainly around the world where they will have four goalkeepers at one time. And this can definitely be done as long as obviously the staff buying is there. You know, there's a clear understanding that maybe two goalkeepers need to go across for shooting at one time. So that might be the two goalkeepers that you send across for the physical output. Uh, and the other two goalkeepers may be left with the goalkeeping coaches to work on a technical or tactical element that has been uh, either derived from by the, the player itself or from uh, the coach's understanding. And together, obviously, the staff working all together, but more importantly, the players and coaches working together, uh, it becomes a, a greater understanding of the physical and obviously, like I spoke about, technical and tactical needs of that goalkeeper, but also uh, where they fit in in terms of the week and how we can manipulate them. When it comes to figuring out whether that individual is going to be focused on technical, tactical, or physical, would you have an example, either hypothetically or something that has occurred for the club, where as a performance analyst staff and uh coaching staff and sports science who have all looked at one particular goalkeeper and perhaps figured out that he needs a particular refinement in a certain area and then how you have uh, gone about it in that particular example yeah sure so um we've got uh, an example of a, a goalkeeper that undertakes trigger movements prior to the shot being delivered or prior to the serve being delivered to the goalkeeper and you know everybody has their own individual ways to get set they have their own individual ways of um or their movement patterns towards the ball they're all very similar but they are all individual uh, and we have one goalkeeper that has a movement pattern where there's just a tiny jump prior to the shot and you might have seen it with the uh, goalkeepers um ac across the world um whereby they're they're in the air either as the shot's being taken or, or, or as the, the shot is in the air. came quite apparent when goals were being conceded in the, the final yard of the goal. Uh, so I mean that, what I mean by that is in the low corner or the top corner. And this is a goalkeeper who's very athletic, um, has a lot of ability when it comes to technical work. And it was like, well, why is this happening? So I had a look back at the data once I cropped it down. And what I was noticing was is when you look at the number of low jumps that were occurring in comparison to the rest of the goalkeepers who were facing a similar amount of shots and very similar in terms of the variability of the shots, uh, this particular goalkeeper's low jumps were considerably higher. And when I say considerably, you're looking at probably 30 to 40 more jumps than the rest of the group who were experiencing the same sort of exposure. So then we asked our analyst um, to look at, you know, the the goals conceded. Now I, I completely understand that obviously goals conceded. It's um, it's all based on where the shot's been taken from, uh, type of ability of the striker, 
you know, the, the shot face, etc. There's a lot of variables that go into a goal conceded. However, we were looking at very similar patterns from goalkeeper to goalkeeper. And this goalkeeper was, you know, when we broke down the stats and um, our analyst looked at it, he was conceding more goals. And the areas that he was conceding more goals were in the final yard of the goal, which would explain that, you know, if the goalkeeper can get back down to the ground after takeoff, he can probably make a save within two yards either side of him. That's quite comfortable. Or he can make it, you know, a save quite routinely down to his feet. What he can't do is he can't get set and loaded, ready to go into that final push-off and generate enough force into, to get into the lower portion of the dive or the, the high portion of the dive in the final yard. Um, so we had to retrain sort of that movement, not eradicate the movement, because that, that movement is ingrained in his goalkeeping pattern. And it's obviously very important for him to produce a similar movement in order for him to be ready for the shot. So instead of a jump occurring, it was saying to him, okay, well, how do we still have your feet firmly on the ground and, and you're very movable and adaptable in, in your positioning, but at the same time, you're you're ready to face the shot and generate enough force to get into you know, those extreme areas of the goal. And it simply was, instead of a jump, it's a tiny movement forward to backwards. And I'm talking, you know, probably 10 centimetres, if that way, it's just a tiny movement forward backward and he's in and when you look at the jump data it's you know dramatically reduced whereby you're looking at a similar sort of loading perspective now from this particular goalkeeper to the rest of the goalkeeping cohort so his actual movement patterning or movement biases prior to the shot are very similar um, and he's not loaded in a, a direction where he's off the floor and now he's having to come back down to the ground to get set to then generate force to go again but instead he's utilising still sort of a pre-trigger or counter-movement prior to the shot, but he's still generating it from the floor instead of having to go from the air down to the floor and back again. One thing that we know now is that the highest training load that a goalkeeper is going to be exposed to is not game day, unlike many of the outfield players. Therefore, um, typically what we see in a weekly a microcycle for an outfield player is that you taper into a game. Is that the same approach that you take with goalkeepers or does it differ now that you uh, have this information? Yeah. So it's, it's almost like a reversibility theory or effect, um, as you could say, in the fact that, you know, outfield players are training for a game, you know, in every sense they are training for a game. Our goalkeepers, you know, if you look at the physical outputs, are we training for a game? We're not, you know. Are we psychologically training for a game? Well, yes, we are in certain aspects. Are we technically training for a game? Yes, we are, you know. Um, so from, if you look at it from a typical week for an outfield player where, like you say there, it will taper into the game, it will vary for a goalkeeper because our needs for quality of technical detail, tactical detail, etc., will usually happen at the start of the week. It will taper down to a period within probably Wednesday and Thursday. But that Friday then becomes really important for us in terms of the detail that's given on the field. And unlike, obviously, an outfield player that may do very minimal on a Friday, it becomes 
really it becomes a really important day for the goalkeeper um, to expose them to a their needs as a goalkeeper from a psychological perspective because there are a lot of goalkeepers out there who have specific needs specific routines that may hinder their performance from what they feel they particularly want um, and obviously what we may expose them to so we may expose them to a small amount of you know speed exposure um, or we may expose them to a small amount of reaction type uh, drills just to get them in tune into what they need but if you look at it on a Friday you know is is the load probably higher to what an outfield player would accrue then I would definitely uh, say yes because the needs for that goalkeeper the following day are less therefore we can um, afford to have slightly more on that day in terms of the actual goalkeeper's needs from a, a psychological perspective and what they feel they need from a physical perspective, but also from the detail that is needed for preparing the athlete for those one, two or three instances that they're going to need uh, in that game day. For your goalkeepers, you both collect internal and external load data. Have you noticed any correlation between the external load, the number of dives, and then the internal load, the RPE plus the duration of the session? It's actually quite interesting um, because the higher the RPE usually correlates, the higher the workload uh, usually correlates with the uh, amount of dives that the goalkeeper's done within that training session. You would probably normally attribute something like that, you know, somebody who, who has no knowledge of goalkeeping whatsoever and you would, you know, you could walk out to the street and say, you know, if I'm going to do 100 dives today, you are likely to get back a higher workload. Um, however, you know, if you look at adding a couple more metrics into that equation, so for instance, when we do our multifunction sessions, which would be a cross into a, a maybe a shot, we've got two different variables within there. We've got two different metrics that the goalkeeper is being sort of recorded on or they've been tested on, you know, and that is a, a jump perspective and also a dive perspective. So when we add those two elements in, there has to be a, um, a leverage from one perspective, and that is us understanding. So if we understand that the higher the amount of dives, the higher the amount of workload, when we put a multifunction session on and we now incorporate another parameter or another area, we have to understand that we're not going to be able to achieve you know, 100 dives within a session and then a, you know, 50 high jumps and still maintain the quality. And also keep the athlete from, you know, going into a severely fatigued state. So it's us as sports science and coaching together uh, coming to a correct session design that understands that if we are attributing one particular parameter as dives as a main sort of source of workload, how do we now come to a conclusion for a practice design where you are adding different elements in such as jumps or such as passing and keeping the balance between the number of jumps, number of passes, and number of shots so that the athlete isn't being overloaded in one particular stimulus and therefore obviously become into a fatigue state. So far, we've, we've been talking about some of the data points that you've collected, but we haven't talked specifically about the integration of that. So integration into coaching delivery. And in particular, there is an interesting case study or interesting example that you informed me about last week when we were 
had a quick Skype session. And one of them was regarding a goalkeeper that had a technical issue in that there was a left to right dive imbalance. Uh, could you discuss how you utilize the information gathered from the GPS along with the video gathered by the performance analyst to figure out what the technical issue was and what was occurring? No problem. So uh, we had a goalkeeper, um, an exceptional goalkeeper in actual fact, whose, whose skills in goalkeeping have got him to where he is. And we always knew that on the left-hand side there were potentials for improvement, should we say, but we never knew to what degree that could occur. And we never knew to what degree the differences were between his right and left. So the data obviously allows us to collect number of dives left and number of dives right. And what we were finding when we were looking at weekly weekly data points was that there was a vast difference between the number of dives to this goalkeeper's left-hand side and the number of dives to his right-hand side. And you're talking you know, 40 dives to his left-hand side in a week and 110 dives to his, to his other side in a week. Initially, uh, me and Neil Moss were looking at this data and going, okay, you know, we know that there's a, a slight issue here with his left-hand side. Let's have a look at it more in a technical detail. And then we used the analyst and we got all of the footage from the goalkeeping sessions. We got all of the footage from the outfield sessions and we, we came together and understood that more goals were potentially being, well, more goals were being conceded on the left-hand side. And not only that, the goalkeeper is choosing to move more in a negative position than they were in a positive position and tending to use a different technique other than a dive to make the save. That was no, you know, it's no fault of the goalkeeper. Um, it was just his preferred movement towards the ball on that side. So it, it allowed us then, from a coaching perspective on field, to look at that specific pattern of movement towards the ball on the left-hand side and what was hindering the goalkeeper to have a fluid movement on the left-hand side. And it came from two two main points, and that was from the lower half. If we look at where the foot was actually being placed, it wasn't in a forward direction. It was more from a lateral perspective, uh, which meant that obviously when we're going into a dive, it tended to be backwards. Uh, simply because of where obviously the you know the, the hip allows us to move, and then the second perspective was looking at the number of hands that were going to the ball on that side, and what we were finding was that when the goalkeeper was moving to his right hand side, he was tending to drive with two hands and allowing a full fluid motion towards the ball, whereas on the left hand side, what we were finding was that the goalkeeper was simply moving with one hand, and that there was an issue with the other hand. Um, moving in a completely opposite direction and sort of causing a major twist in his body. So again, just going back through tiny di different different details within that perspective, breaking it down from base level all the way up through you know the the expertise level to where he is, and sort of retraining both the lower half and part part of the mechanics within the upper upper half as well allowed us to come to a consensus now and also a detailed perspective from the data where you can pretty much say, apart from the variables and the variability that you will have within a session, that you're getting near enough 50-50 left and right uh, now. And obviously the data from not only my perspective, but uh, from the analyst perspective 
he's making more saves to his left-hand side, conceding far less on his left-hand side, and the whole entire movement is becoming much more um, you know, symmetrical from right to left. I believe that you had mentioned, I believe it was either on your Twitter or it was in our discussion, that typically after a dive, in, in case the goalkeeper needs to get back up to, to make a subsequent save, uh, typically the average time is 1.5 seconds? Yeah. If we know that it's 1.5 seconds, um, you have now begun to implement a way in order to have goalkeepers understand how they can get up. Um, I, I think you've been doing it with some of your academy players. Could you describe that process and the way you go about training uh, goalkeepers to get up after they have uh, dived to save a ball? What you'll typically find is is that every obviously goalkeeper is different, so their movement patterns are different. The way that they return to their feet is different, and we're finding just from average game data that you know in eighty percent of the time the goalkeeper is returning to the feet with one and a half seconds of you know hitting the ground. Now the other twenty percent may come from um, the goalkeeper wasting time. He may have gone down for a save and just simply lay there, uh, or he may have made a save, quite a big save. Uh, and simply decided to, I don't know, from some, some, uh, it might be a, a confidence perspective. They want to, you know, admire the shot or have the plaudits from the fans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Again, which is fine, and you'll see that in all all walks of football. But if we know that the majority of the time, eighty percent of the time, the goalkeeper is, you know, getting back to their feet within one and a half seconds, it's really important that that sort of element is trained within our goalkeeping sessions and also our off-field sessions. What we're trying to do now with the support of the analyst again is looking at the, the data that we have and looking at the, the analysis perspective and the game data and looking at when the goalkeepers are returning to their feet the quickest within a game setting. So that might be the type of shot that they've saved how is the goalkeeper or why is the goalkeeper returning to the feet in it sometimes less than a second or why is the goalkeeper returning to the feet in over a second and a half and again every time will be slightly different because of the type of shot that they're facing or the serve that's coming in so it's really important that we marry the analysis side with the sports science side and then allow the goalkeeper to understand why it's happening because it's all right us sitting there looking at the data and obviously the analyst looking at the video footage. But unless the goalkeeper understands his movement patterns and why it got him to where he would be, it's, you know, the, the data and the analysis is, is none, it's null void, you know, null and void. And one perspective, we can't really train the psychological perspective of 50,000 people around you and the next shot is coming in and I have to get back to my feet because the next shot's coming and I, I need to save it to keep a clean sheet. We can't we can't give them that. That is an in inbuilt part of their goalkeeping makeup. They either want to make the second save or they don't. So again, looking at the analysis and the sports science side, the goalkeeper will come to a general consensus of how they got up to their feet the quickest. But what we're trying to do from an academy level as well is train the goalkeeper to get up in a rhythm that will facilitate them from different shots. So that might be diving to their left-hand side and getting back up with their left hand whilst keeping the right hand in the air. So instead of what you'll find at the younger age groups is putting both hands down to get their whole body weight back up uh, ready for the next shot. We're trying to train them at a younger age group to just use one element or one hand 
to get them back and return to their feet, whilst also keeping another hand in play. So again, from a from a professional perspective, we can guide them down a path in terms of how they are in a game. Why does that happen in a game? Are there differences in the type of shot that they're facing and therefore the body positions that they take up? Can they replicate that in a training session? From a young, young academy perspective, it's all about making sure that their movement patterns are correct at that young age group and then can be used within a goalkeeping setting because they're already ingrained in their system. Now, one way that we could facilitate that on field from a youngster's perspective and also a professional level is simply by adding in a second serve. So the goalkeeper always returns to their feet for a volley or always returns to their feet for a scoop. No matter where the ball has gone, if they dive to the right side or dive to the left or whatever it might be, there's always another stimulus coming in. So the goalkeeper always has to get back to the feet. And then again, you're training that response, that response of I've gone down for a dive or I've gone down for a save and now have to come back because I know something else is coming into my field of vision or that I have to react to. Anthony, now that you have all of these uh, data points, what areas do you want to further explore both as a goalkeeping department and sports science department at AFC Bournemouth? I think uh, from a sports science uh, and goalkeeping department together, I think um, it's really important that what you'll see is you'll see um, from an outfield perspective, you'll see a lot of drill libraries occurring. You'll see a lot of research out there about what a 3v3 small-sided game may give to the outfield player from a physiological perspective or what a certain high-distant running exposures or etc etc so i think it's really important from both a sports science and goalkeeping perspective that we are able to understand goalkeeping specific tests we are able to form a goalkeeping library um, that gives us consistent data values based on the type of session that we implement um, and also give us a more rounded picture of the goalkeeper's week so at the moment we obviously know very we know very well now um, what sort of exposures they're going to get if they're going to X or Y. But I think what's really important for us now to get to that next level is for us to be able to say, okay, we're going to put on this type of session with this change. What is going to happen? Or how could the athlete potentially respond to that? Um, and I think that would take us to the next level uh, in terms of a goalkeeping and definitely a sports science department and allow us more integration and um, a, an even bigger buy-in than what we already do have between athlete coach and athlete sports scientist because they'll be able to come to us and go, you know, with those subtle changes that you made in there, I have this outcome or I felt this outcome within the session and we'll get player feedback and we'll be able to use the data for that player feedback and for the coach's feedback to come together to to give the athlete the best possible chance to perform on a weekend. Anthony, if anybody wants to reach out to you about anything that you discussed within today's podcast, what would be the best way that they can do so? Yeah, so um, like I said to you before, I'm really open when it comes to um, having chats and things like that because I think it's really important that you know research in goalkeeping is so, so little. And therefore, the the more we can expose goalkeeping coaches, even outfield coaches or or sports scientists to 
the needs of the goalkeeper, the type of exposure of the goalkeeper, etc. They can come on Twitter and obviously uh, message me on there at uh, GK Coach Sports I. Uh, so that's GK Coach and then Sport S C I. Again, and you know, I respond in no time at all because I think it's really important that we share, understand, and that the amount of times this year that I've had a conversation with somebody else and it's just spurred another light bulb that we can use and take that back to our club and go, you know, that's a great idea there. How can we implement that from a different perspective, even if it's from a rugby perspective or a basketball perspective into our own training session? Anthony, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. No, thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Historic Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it and you listened to it on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you were to leave either a review or rating. Helps other strength coaches and sports scientists discover the show. Next week on the Historic Performance Podcast, I interview John Kiley. And no, we're not going to be talking about periodization. Instead, we're going to be defining coordination. What are the newer biological systems that contribute to coordination? And where should the inclusion of coordination exercises be included in long-term rehab programs. So I hope you enjoy next week's podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes on the website at historicperformance.net, and I'll see all of you next week.